From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. Police say the shooting began around 10.30 Sunday morning as many inside the Sikh temple were gathering for worship. Witnesses said the first shots came outside, killing two inside mayhem as horrified members of the temple hid in closets, sheltering children from a spray of bullets. This weekend, six across the country are marking the solemn 10-year anniversary of the Oak Creek Gurdwara Massacre on August 5th, 2012. It's important to pause and look at the ways things have changed for the better, and also for the worse, in the intervening decade, and how the teachings of this faith informed the inspiring response of the community to this terrible tragedy. On this week's show, you'll hear from Kieran Gill, Executive Director of the Sick American Legal Defense and Education Fund. America was founded based on Christianity. Our DNA is Christian. Our roots are Christian. We aren't Muslim. We aren't atheist. I think America is best off when we have Christians, good, solid, loving Christians in power. The language of religious freedom has long been captive to the political religious right, twisted to create a right to discriminate for the majority instead of the intended protection for the rights of minority beliefs. It's important to do more than just condemn that unconscionable trend. There's an urgent need to describe and model true religious freedom for all. Dr. Sabrina Dent will be doing just that on Tuesday with a talk entitled Humanizing Religious Freedom. She'll be here later in the hour for a preview. It's a melding of Christian nationalism, of traditionalist values, and of these sort of authoritarian ideas of who can be in a group and who can't be in a group based on their gender identification, based on sexuality, based on their uh, social moral leanings. As if the relentless spread of Christian nationalism among white evangelicals in this country weren't bad enough, now we're seeing those dangerous beliefs popping up in other denominations as well. This week, we'll take a look at this phenomenon through the eyes of scholar Sarah Riccardi Swartz. Her Religion Dispatches article is headlined, Orthodox Church's authoritarian anti-LGBT statement poses serious threat to academic freedom. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and unintended consequences. Even lobbyists admitted shock at the outcome of the Kansas Reproductive Rights Referendum, the first chance voters have had to address abortion since SCOTUS reversed Roe. Nearly 60% of Kansans opted to block state legislature power to restrict the procedure further, which analysts say could portend similar outcomes in other states come November. In Georgia, however, the State Department of Revenue now says residents can claim an embryo as a dependent for tax purposes. A fetal heartbeat is enough to qualify for a $3,000 exemption. That's possible as early as six weeks into gestation. And I noticed this week that Gab, the leading far-right alternative to Twitter, which has claimed to offer users absolute free speech rights because supposedly big tech relentlessly promotes a leftist agenda and silences real Americans, blah, 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 has not only become the predictable home of endless QAnon, MAGA, and white nationalist rhetoric, it is now officially and proudly claiming a Christian supremacist stance. This is a direct quote from the website. Our mission is to pioneer the parallel economy and to empower people around the world to become digitally and physically sovereign over their lives for the glory of God. The founder has also overtly declared he wants the conservative movement to be, quote, exclusively Christian. Free speech indeed. 
Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. On August 5, 2012, a lone gunman entered the Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and murdered six members. It was the bloodiest race-based attack in the country since 1963. What happened next speaks volumes about the Sikh faith, as well as the character of the surviving members of that community. With the 10-year anniversary of that terrible day just behind us, we're fortunate to have with us Kieran Cora Gill, Executive Director of the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund, SALDEF, who is in Oak Creek for the solemn observance of this milestone. Kieran, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Could we start by remembering the names of the victims of that act of terror 10 years ago? Yes, absolutely. The names of the victims are Baramjit Gore, Satwan Singh Kaleka, Prakash Singh, Sita Singh, Ranjit Singh, Saveg Singh, and Punjab Singh. Thank you. May their memories be for a blessing. Would you talk about what that day was like for you and the community where you were 10 years ago? So uh, I was actually... um, at a uh, Gurdwara or Sikh temple function that day um, in New Jersey. I was active with my community. Sangat, it was actually a, a uh, Gurdwara picnic. Um, we, somebody got a call um, in the middle of the event and we heard about the attack in Oak Creek, uh, the Oak Creek Sikh temple of Wisconsin. And um, I think there was just shock. Um, you know, Sikhs have, unfortunately um, been targeted in this country, you know, post 9-11 because of the way we look and um, we often call a backlash, but which what is unfortunately continued today, um, you know, but the targeting, I don't think it ever really, I don't think it ever really sunk in that there was a possibility that in one of our most sacred spaces where we feel safe, where we come to congregate, where we come to pray, that that space could be violated. And that space, um, we could be made to feel unsafe. Um, and I think as a community, we really grappled with it. Um, one of the things that, that I've talked about is in the Sikh faith, the Gurdwara is open to anyone and everyone from all backgrounds, all faiths. You can come in um, to the Gurdwara, it, it's, there's free meals served, um, you will be welcomed. And even the, the, the gunman, I think, um, you know, must have known, um, certainly was able to enter uh, into the Sikh temple of Wisconsin and, um, and cause the, you know, the violence and the, um, the, the tragic outcomes that he did. Most of the communities in this country who have suffered these horrible attacks have thrown up the defenses immediately. Uh, 
but the Sikh community in Oak Creek rose up almost immediately in solidarity and even service. What do we need to know about the weeks and the months after that awful attack? One of the central um, tenets of the Sikh faith um, is a belief in the connection and oneness of all of us in our common humanity. And I think one of the ways that we deal with tragedy is we come together in community and work to move forward, work to ensure that these types of tragic events do not happen again in our community or any other communities. And it's that process of healing um, that I think is, um, is, is part of the reason you see the response in the way that you do. Um, fundamental to the Sikh faith is that there's a divine light in all of us. Um, and even, even the, the shooter, um, I just, I was on a call yesterday with uh, Valerie Kaur, who was there at the time of, of uh, the attacks, uh, helping the community in the aftermath. And one of the things she noted was um, that very next week when they had the prayers in the Sikh temple, we do an Ardas where we where we pray for the community and others. And there was prayers said for, you know, the, the fallen, the victims of this tragedy, but there was also a, a prayer said for the gunman, because we do believe that despite his actions and actions of those that wish us harm, that there is a light and there is, everyone has a choice to develop the best in them, which is God, which is that, that divine light. And that light is not something that is extinguished by by a single act, however awful. No, it's not extinguished by a single act, however awful. Um, you know, we we believe that again, everyone has that divine light in them, and it's your choice whether you choose to develop that and develop that connection and develop that understanding of the oneness of humanity. And the other aspect that you mentioned is service, and that's a central tenant of our faith and another way that we choose to um, practice and heal um, in coming together in community. I think, you know, it's really interesting as, as we saw and, and I've been part of the commemoration event. It's so, um, you know, almost profound in a way taken for granted what we're working for and uh, towards. And, and I had to almost take a step back in the last couple of days as, as we're approaching this Friday where we're going to have the the, the event, the remembrance event and the candlelight vigil, that what it is the world we're trying to build, um, you know, a, a world where everybody is treated with dignity and respect, regardless of your background, regardless of your faith. Um, there's an, we, we are working towards an inclusive society. We're working towards um, a society, again, where everybody is, is respected and, and it's, it's about connection and love. And sometimes, you know, I know that, that there's different views out there across the different spectrums, but, but that to me is, is so central to our faith um, and working with others and respecting others and their beliefs and uniting with others is something that I think just comes so naturally. And that's why the, the messaging around this remembrance event is actually Heal, Unite, Act. And I think that's very telling of, of how the community feels and how the Sikh community responds to these types of tragedies. Please talk about the way the Oak Creek Sikh community is marking the 10th anniversary of the shooting and how people who are not in Wisconsin can take part in that. Absolutely. 
So we have a series of commemoration events actually starting today, uh, Thursday, uh, going through Sunday. Uh, today we'll be having a holding a, um, a a session healing from hate and protecting places of worship a workshop. It's going to be at uh, City Hall, and the purpose of this session is to uh, provide you know practical ways that different faith communities can. Um, secure their houses of worship, find out about resources and tools from government agencies. And the second part of that is the healing from hate piece. Um, and as you might, as you may know, Pradeep Palika has done a lot of work in de-radicalization efforts, um, has worked in partnership with a number of other faith groups um, in ensuring that, um, you know, there's, there's resources and support around mental health and trauma. So that second piece is gonna be really um, addressing those issues. Uh, tomorrow at uh, 6 p.m. there will be the uh, remembrance event and candlelight vigil. It's an opportunity to really um, you know, center the families and the victims of this horrific tragedy, uh, honor their memories and, um, and show support. And we certainly invite everyone to come out uh, for that event. And I should say all the events are, are free to attend. Everyone can um, you know, we encourage everybody to come out, um, support and, and stand in solidarity with our community. Um, so the event tonight is, uh, starts at, uh, sorry, Friday starts at 6 p.m. And then on Saturday from 11 to 3 p.m., we are inviting everybody to the Sikh Temple uh, of Wisconsin, uh, where the event on Friday night will also be held. Um, that is go going to be the Jardi Kala community event. And it is an opportunity for us to really come together um, and to discuss ways to move forward, to build the relationships that are so necessary as we do this work. So we'll have um, tours of the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin. Um, you can come learn more about uh, Sikhism and, and visit a Gurdwara if you've never been to one. We'll have workshops, uh, interfaith workshops, a workshop about youth mobilization. Um, and we will also have games and activities, turban tying um, and uh, different, you know, again, games and activities. We certainly encourage everybody to come out. Um, we would love to see you there. I'm understanding that there is, for lack of a better term, a 48-hour prayer marathon as well. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. So in um, in the Sikh tradition, uh, one of the uh, the ways that we, we pray, especially around um, events, different occasions, happy, sad, um, is to do an Akhandvat, which is a full reading of the Guru Granth Sahib, which is our holy book. Um, it takes about 48 hours if you are reading it, um, if you're very well versed. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> yes, if some of, for some of us, it takes a little longer. And so that the end of the Akhandvat is on Sunday. So there will be a service on Sunday. Um, there will be um, the uh, Kirtan, which will be Sikh hymns that are sung. It'll be in the Gurdwara, there'll be food served, and there'll be a short, um, you know, service and remarks after the, um, after the divan as well. And it, in addition to all of that, the Sikh community is reaching across lines of faith to focus on gun violence as it continues to plague the nation. Is, is there that kind or other kinds of organizing going on around this event? Absolutely, there is. Yeah, we really try to do organizations like SOLDEP really tried to do a deep dive into what are some potential policy solutions and things we can look to um, as we move forward to ensure that this, these types of acts don't happen to our community or any other community ever again. 
Um, and so we are um, looking at gun control measures. Um, we have had discussions, as we know, the the background check um, that was um, that was conducted on Wade Michael Page was was inadequate for a number of reasons. So we're pushing for solutions there. Um, we are pushing for um, uh, the uh, establishment of um, a domestic terrorism terrorism office that can look at issues of domestic terrorism. We're um, we're pushing for uh, increased resources around grants for securing houses of worship and ensuring those uh, resources are in language so different communities can access them. And also um, looking at uh, hate crime uh, legislation and ensuring there is uh, adequate, adequate ways to prosecute those that um, have been involved in hate crimes and to, um, to, to make that connection. So all of those things we are um, advocating for. And if you go to the website, um, which is oakcreekpennants.squarespace.com, uh, um, we do have a take action tab and all of those uh, pieces of legislation are listed there. And if you feel so inclined, um, you can, there's a link to um, write to your uh, member of Congress to um, ask them to support these policies. Such important work. And, you know, every, Everyone at Interfaith Alliance works hard every day to defend and protect true religious freedom for all. And yet in recent years, it often feels like we're losing the battle, which can make it challenging to keep going. With the level of divisiveness only growing in this country, let me ask you personally, how do you keep going? Where do you find the hope? So for me, um, I find hope in the relationships we build. And sometimes that doesn't come come up in mainstream media. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, make the headlines. But it's in the sincere and genuine relationships that I know I have built in doing this work that I continue to build. I want to stand alongside with you, not just in times of tragedy, but in times of of happiness in times where I can um, provide my support across different areas. I'm excited to learn about, um, you know, different people from different backgrounds and different faiths, just in the same way that I know many have have expressed interest and solidarity with my community. It's in those moments that I feel hope. And being in this position as executive director of Saldeth and in the, you know, in the interactions that I've had and the initiatives that we've that we've started and in, um, you know, commemoration events uh, like what's what's happening this weekend, I do see hope and I do see um, a way forward. And I feel like if we continue to strengthen that, to me, our future together is much brighter. What would you like those of us who are unable to join you in Wisconsin this weekend to hold as a, a thought in our minds, in our hearts, as we observe this solemn anniversary? Give us a, a way to connect with you across the miles? I I think really, you know, again, uplifting this message of Heal, Unite, Act, I think is is uh, really key. Um, if you can't join us in person, a lot of the events will be live streamed and they will be on the website. But more so, I would say, you know, reach out to any of us. Um, we want to work with you. We want to get to know you. We want to be... Um, you know, in in community with you. 
Um, and I, I think I, I said it before in terms of, you know, the sick belief is it's really that each one of us can make a difference. And our journey is to develop the best in us, which is, which is that divine light. And we want to go on this journey with you. So I, I would say beyond the, you know, supporting the events uh, this weekend, um, sharing the live stream, uplifting um, what's happened, um, you know, in our community and, and what continues to happen to the sick American community. Um, I would say, you know, please do reach out and, and stand with us. Would you talk just a little bit before we go about the achievements that you've had as executive director of the Sick American Legal Defense and Education Fund, as well as the challenges you're facing in this age of dominant mainstream religion, marginalizing minority beliefs? Just give us an insight into your work. So a lot of what we do, we do a lot of advocacy, policy, and research work. Um, and it was after Oak Creek, actually, a number of the sick orgs pushed to get FBI to track uh, hate crimes against sick Americans as a separate category. So that was a win, you know, in terms of understanding the gravity of the problem. Um, I We know based on the research and, and not even all the, the hate crimes are reported up through FBI. As of last year, uh, from last year to this year's report, there's been an 82% increase in wow. the number of hate crimes against sick Americans. And if you account for population size, sick Americans are the most targeted religious group in the United States. So I, the work that we do is, is really to um, ensure that um, you know, our community and other communities can can safely practice our religion um, to really uplift the voices and stories and experiences of our community. Um, in fact, uh, in 2020, Saldiv did a, a National Sick American Survey. Um, a lot of the the statistics from that survey we're trying to uplift now, um, you know, during the anniversary, so people understand that this, you know, unfortunately is continuing to happen to our communities and so many others. Um, it was over, there's, there's statistics, over 50% of uh, sick children experience bullying in schools. A uh, similar number of over 50% have, have faced discrimination here because of their articles of faith. And, you know, it's interesting, our community, when you look at the statistics and, I, and, and the research, and I, you know, I see it all the time, and I hear the stories, and I hear the experiences, and you would expect that there's anger, hurt, or bitterness. But I, I think there's a realization that this is an issue, but also a tremendous amount of resolve to address this issue and make it better for everyone. So when we when we do our work around hate crimes or civil rights or religious freedom, we want to ensure that those, um, that those freedoms are um, enjoyed by everyone and that nobody has to face uh, you know, these realities that our community has had to face. I'm glad you're doing this work. I'm just uh, sorry that we have to have it done because there is so much to celebrate and to enjoy um, together and especially under the hospitality of the sick community. Karen Corgill is Executive Director of SALDEF, the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Karen, thank you so much for making this time to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. 
Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Up next, Humanizing Religious Freedom with Dr. Sabrina Dent. And later, Christian Nationalism in the American Orthodox Church. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. We regularly address the many ways the rhetoric of religious freedom has been hijacked to serve dominant, exclusionary, and discriminatory agendas. In truth, protection of the right to follow any religion, and critically, no religion, is core to this fundamental constitutional value. On Tuesday next, the American Humanist Association is presenting a talk titled Humanizing Religious Freedom for All, by Sabrina Dent of the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. Dr. Dent has been with us before, and it's great to have her back to talk about these important principles. Sabrina, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much, Rabbi Moline. It's so great to be with you all today. So your focus will be in great measure on religious privilege, which is a great term, but I suspect that a lot of people listening don't know exactly what that means. Would you describe what religious privilege is, please? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So religious privilege is pretty much when one particular group is preferenced, one particular religious group is preferenced over other groups or non-religious groups. So right now, the language that most people may identify with or have heard is Christian nationalism. Um, And so what people need to understand is there is a distinction between Christianity and Christian nationalism, right? So it's It's not when people are talking about Christian nationalism, they're talking about a small group of people who believe that um, what it means to be American means that you have to hold Christian ideals or Christian beliefs um, and that you have to make certain professions of that particular faith or even how you show up. And we see that even happening right now in terms of public policy, how that is impacting communities. So religious privilege is when there is preference that is shown towards one group over another and they're more and they are prioritized in decision making about policy in many different ways. Um, It's really raising the question of who has religious freedom in this country? And I think that's an important question for people to think about because on paper, Everyone, (laughs) everyone has the right to freedom of conscience and freedom of belief. Um, But in praxis, it hasn't appeared to be that way. Um, And so this there's this tide that is turning, which is a very dangerous turn that is taking place here in the United States. So there are obviously people who claim this religious privilege and promote this religious privilege. But as you noted, it's a relatively small segment of American society. Yes. How do they get away with it? Right. 
though. It, it, how do they get away with it? One, um, funding. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> let's be real. Money, money talks, right? And if the person that has the money has the microphone to really promote this messaging, then that helps. Also, I think it happens because there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation that is out there that gets circulated and people are not educated about the issues that are really happening in the public square and who is really impacted by these issues. So one of the things that I appreciate, Rabbi Jack, is that um, there are uh, think tanks and um, data or um, organizations such as the, the Public Religion Research Institute, right? And Pew Research Inst- um, Pew Research Center, because they show data that um, that shows us that the religious landscape in the United States is changing, right? Which means some of the demographics um, in the United States are changing also. And what happens is there is a small segment of the population that has created these narratives that create fear among other individuals that give these perceptions that certain things are happening to remove their rights um, in the United States, their rights to believe or the right to act or to make decisions about certain things when that is not, that's far from the truth. The reality of it is, is that the United States as a pluralistic nation is for everyone, which means everyone's rights, their beliefs um, should be respected and guarded and protected. And, um, And so what happens is you have this small group that says, no, this this infringes upon my right to believe X, Y, and Z, because I'm not trying to target any particular group in this conversation. <laughs> but I think that 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 messaging continues on. It's like it's kind of like the game telephone. Like when you play telephone, right? Somebody gives one person a message, and then by the time you get to the end of the line, it has totally shifted from what the actual truth or the spoken word has been. And I think that is what we're seeing play out in the public square, but it's dangerous when it infiltrates public policy and it dictates how other people should live their lives. And we saw that even with decisions around Roe versus Wade. We've seen that in decisions that have been made about funding um, funding from public schools then going towards private religious education. So there's a lot that is happening. And even recently with um, the news that uh, came out about the 20 uh, GOP attorney generals that then want to see, um, sue the USDA office uh, because of language to go into a piece of legislation that provides additional protections for people based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Again, that comes from someone's theological beliefs about a certain group of individuals. So yeah, to bring it back to that talk, yes, it's about humanizing religious freedom, right? 
for me, people think of it as, you know, just religious freedom, my right to believe or not to believe. But I, I say it goes a little bit further than that. It goes as far as thinking about a person's right to live, to thrive, to be, to exist in society without being discriminated, um, and without being targeted for however they show up. And that to me is a human rights issue at the root cause. It's, that's, it's human rights. It's, it's human dignity. So a, a lot of what these groups are doing that are trying to uh, exercise or, or affirm, assert religious privilege is directed at religious minorities. Yes. But, but there are also uh, large cohorts of non-religious people in this country, people who either don't identify with a religious tradition or with faith at all, who are even more victimized by religious privilege. How do the dominant traditions in this country exercise their privilege over those humanistic, secular, non-faith-based groups? Right. So I, I think examples that we've seen in the public square recently uh, would be the case that came out of, I believe, Washington State Um um, Kennedy versus Bremerton, where you had the the football coach to pray on the 50 yard line um, during a school sponsored event. Right. Uh, the question that I raised in watching this and many other people raised is, well, how would that have played out if. He wasn't um, a Christian coach, right? If he was of another religious um, group or if he was non-religious and decided to do something different, would this have gone as far? So this is an example for me of where privilege, like those that are religiously privileged, get more privileges because, again, there are lots of complexities that come with this because public schools are designed to serve everyone, which means that people come from many different religious and non-religious identities, worldviews, and everything. And so in this particular case, you have a state actor, a person that's employed by the public schools, that's public funding, um, that is then um exercising his right to believe in in the capacity in which he should not be doing it and that's that as the football coach i really believe that everyone has the right to practice whatever their conscience leads them to do so but not in ways that are coercive towards other people not in ways that violate um, the separation of church and state. And I think that's the thing is that people also need to understand the experiences, for me, the experiences of youth in classrooms. So there, there, there have been reports that have come out from the Hindu American Foundation, as well as the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund, as well as um, American atheists that have come out to talk about the experiences of these groups, these religious minorities are non-religious groups and how they've been treated or targeted in the classroom, not just by students, but also by educators. And so um, when some people see what happened with that particular case and say, oh, there's no harm in it, there's lots of harm that happens to students in the classroom. And even this, educators that might, um, might be non-religious or um, um, or a practice, uh, um, a religion that's not considered the majority here in the United States, also are targets in the classroom. 
And there are many different ways in which that shows up, even if schools don't take into consideration um, religious observances and holidays for students that um, practice other traditions and there and then there's penalty for them if they miss a day of school well they're they're exercising their right to uh, practice their beliefs so how is it that how are public schools being fair to everyone um and, and no matter what they believe or the, or don't believe, and so that's why these cases are concerning and problematic. That's just that's just one way, and I'm sure, um, Rabbi Jack, that there are many other cases or many other uh, stories that are not told that don't get sure. the media coverage. Um, but we need to know these things um, because it's important for those of us that advocate for um, separation of church and state, and also um, freedom of conscience and belief that we're making making sure that it's happening in praxis, not just on paper. Yeah, I, I think other than the judicial system that we have, which guarantees a fair hearing independent of, of anybody's beliefs or practices, there is right. no place more than the public school system that is designed to be a level playing field for all people, no matter their beliefs or their or their uh, ethnic identities. So it's an important example. What makes this so difficult is that religious uh, privilege can get turned into dogma, and then anyone who threatens privilege is angrily denounced as heretical or even anti-God. How do you counter those arguments, which are self-serving, of course, but they're also very effective in activating believers? <laughs> that <laughs> you know what that that's a really that's a great question. Um, Yes, yeah, someone could see it as dogma. Someone could see it as um, heretical. Uh, for me, it goes to goes back to human dignity. Um, that one's beliefs uh, should never infringe upon the human rights of another person. Um, for me, it's about speaking truth to power about the realities of this country as well, right? So we have to, like, from a historical standpoint, we have to remember that human freedom was overlooked initially. Um, also that, uh, but in, in that overlooking of human freedom, there was this beautiful opportunity for them to talk about freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, but and yet, and still over time, there still continues to be this uh, disenfranchisement of many different groups as it pertains to their human rights. And what happens then is people use their religion to then justify why certain things should take place based on another group's identity or their beliefs about that particular group. So for me, that is that is problematic within itself. So we, we need to address religious privilege in this country. Um, there, uh, beyond the fact that the legal system is structured, or at least I should say uh, that it is written that this should not be, that we as everyday citizens have a responsibility to address these issues in our communities, um, in our conversations with our congregations and our conversations with our civic organizations, because again, it's about thinking through the context of who is my neighbor? 
who is the person that I say I love and I care about, right? When you're thinking about those things, then for me, it's about getting down to, again, the human dignity and the human rights of a person. So we have to address religious privilege in this country. And think about this, right? How does one really want to be treated by another individual? And I'm not talking about a person that is not... um, healthy in every sense, right? Someone that is not self-actualized because there are some people that are experiencing challenges in their lives and, you know, um, they're just in a different place than some people that are emotionally healthy and um, in, in a better place, right? But how do you as a human being want to be treated, right? How do you want your family to be treated? And for me, like when I think at, on on religious freedom and uh, addressing religious privilege, I think of it on that base level there. It's about dignity and it's about respect, respect for another human being. And I find it also very problematic, Rabbi Jack, when people say this, um, if people ascribe to a certain religious belief that says um, they believe that everyone is made in the image and likeness of God, right? That means that, um, and that everyone should be respected. If they have that ideology, then they need to uphold that and how they live in their life and how they navigate life in terms of their value for all humanity. Because as soon as you make a decision that is the antithesis of what you proclaim, then you are a hypocrite of the very beliefs that you say you practice. And that is a problem. So that's why religious privilege in this country, that's why Christian nationalism has to be addressed. So let me put you in the position of, uh, of being our professor, our teacher in this. <laughs> if, if you were to give an assignment to every American to choose one of two or three places to start in in dismantling this structure of religious privilege. What are some of the actions that you could recommend for that assignment? Oh, absolutely. Well, one thing I would recommend is that um, they read the book that we wrote. Um, I co-edited a book with Dr. Corey D.B. Walker and um, the eight other scholars, African-American scholars, to talk about African-Americans and religious freedom. And this resource provides a different perspective about religious freedom in this country um, based on the experiences of African-Americans. It talks about culture. It talks about history and it talks about the realities that our experiences are not you know a monolithic experience just like everyone else like there's diversity within the african-american community the next thing that i would wait wait don't don't go to the next thing until you tell us the specific name of the book Oh, sure. The book is titled African-Americans and Religious Freedom, New Perspectives for Congregations and Communities. So great. (laughs) Yes, thank you. You can find that book online. Um, You can get a digital download of that book online, and I highly recommend that you read it. Um, The next thing that I would say is um, check out the work that we're doing at the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. 
we are uh, we are a theological think tank and education organization that is comprised of scholars, um, faith leaders, organizers, and citizens that are really committed to living our faith by advancing um, justice issues. And and in that process is about reimagining religious freedom and holding the entire beloved community in care. For us, the beloved community includes everyone. And so it's about looking at many different justice issues, whether we're talking about voting rights, um, whether we're talking about women's rights, environmental justice, even looking at housing, also immigration issues. We really believe in um, collaboration as well. So that's another resource that I would consider um, for people to to tap into. Um, And we have lots Lots of different people that we partner with in organizations such as the BJC, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which you're quite familiar with, Rabbi Jack, and absolutely the work that they do. Yes, um, I think it's so important for people to see where there are organizations um, such BJ, such as BJC that is a faith-based organization that's fighting for faith and freedom for all people, um, no matter how they show up in the world, um, is important. One other thing that I would recommend is that people really engage in dialogue with the people that they say they love, right? Their their neighbors, their friends, um, to really get a better sense of why is it that you believe what you believe? Like, um, not for the sake of um, trying to convert someone, right? That is not what we're about. We're about really, dialogue is really about deepening your understanding of another person's perspective and experience to get a better sense of, oh, okay, now I understand why you come at this, um, this particular topic this way. However, I want to introduce you to my experience and share this. And I think that when we engage in dialogue, it gives us all opportunities to grow as human beings, to get a better insight for um, what is happening in the world beyond our small world, right? Because we get stuck in our own little world sometimes. And I think it's good to be introduced to what other people are experiencing, why they um, believe what they believe, and then for us to be able to have this dialogue, a healthy dialogue, um, not a debate, because <laughs> um, debates don't necessarily solve issues. Debates have their place, and and getting to know a person is not the place to debate. It's to really seek understanding. So those are some of the things that I would Great. recommend. And um, also, just tap into what's happening um, in your local community. Um, that's a bonus one right there, Rabbi Jack. I think people, we all get sucked into what's happening in the national conversation and oftentimes miss what's happening in our own neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. that is critically important that we know what's happening in the on the ground around us. Um, I'm, in, I'm physically located in Arlington, Virginia. So I learned a lot in the last year about what's happening in Arlington by being connected to my local NAACP chapter. And so it wasn't until then that I was like, oh, wow, um, because I get sucked into the national conversation with the work that I do. And sure. so that is so important um, for people to do that and for people to remember that the elections are coming. Make sure that they <laughs> make sure they vote. Right. I think it's important that people vote. 
So I think I can make one more recommendation as well, and that is that people uh, listen to the virtual talk you're giving this coming Tuesday. Can you tell us what that's going to be about? And don't forget to tell us how we can connect to it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So on Tuesday, I have the opportunity to um, speak uh, during the American Humanist Association's um, Speaking of Humanism series. And this will be an opportunity to really talk about and unpack this thing that we've talked about in terms of religious privilege. Um, People can watch on Facebook Live um, by going to the American Humanist Association's Facebook page. Also, if you go to their website, site. Um, You can also uh, get more information about this upcoming talk. But for me, it's really about sharing with the community more largely why it's important for us to humanize religious freedom. Uh, religious freedom is a very important right in this country, and, and but it also human rights are important. And if we're humanizing it, then we're not leaving out our friends, our brothers and sisters that are non-religious in this conversation. And I think it's important for us to walk alongside one another and doing this work because the reality of it is we cannot do it alone not at all so so yes so join us next tuesday at 6 30 for the american humanist associations um speaking of humanism series um join us on facebook live um i look forward to the questions that people will ask Great. and the dialogue that will come forward and and we want to make sure to mention that's 6.30 Eastern time. Yes, 6.30 Eastern time. You've also talked a little bit about your position at the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. If people want to keep up with what else you're doing, how can they keep up with, with CFJR and support that work? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, go to our website, faithandjusticerva.com. You can see uh, some of the, the videos and the past actions that we've taken, ways that we've collaborated with different organizations. Um, like I said, we're committed to advancing justice in many different ways. I'm excited we've partnered with the academic institutions that have sent us interns to work with us. And so um, the work that we're doing, we're a new center, but we're growing um, and we're housed on the campus of Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. So we're honored to be um, in relationship with the academic partner that supports our work, as well as congregational partners such as the Open Church um, in Maryland and and many others that have been walking alongside us in this work. So visit us um, at faithandjusticerva.com. You can also find us on Twitter um, at Center for Faith 2, as well as Facebook. So we're on social media. We we try to stay active on social media, and we have upcoming events that will be happening this fall. We'll be hosting our Reimagining Religious Freedom um, series, which is a mobile institute where people, again, can get involved. For us, um, Rabbi Jack, it's about providing education and then encouraging people to take action. Um, it's not enough for us to know this information and not do anything with it, right? That in order for us to protect um, our rights and protect democracy, we have to take action. So it's so important that we do this work together. Wonderful. Dr. Sabrina Dent is president of the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation, formerly at Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, 
Sabrina is the founder of Reimagine Religious Freedom, an education initiative dedicated to engaging religious communities in reimagining how we discuss religious freedom to address social justice issues in the 21st century. She is, as we've mentioned, one of the authors of the book African Americans and Religious Freedom, New Perspectives for Congregations and Communities. On Tuesday, Dr. Dent is delivering a talk entitled Humanizing Religious Freedom for All. You can find more information at the American Humanist Association website, AmericanHumanist.org. Sabrina, thanks so much for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jack. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. It's finally gained mainstream attention, the relentless spread of white Christian nationalist rhetoric in evangelical circles, informing and affirming extremist political positions, which are then pushing the religious right even further into radical territory. One could argue it's almost too late at this point, but perhaps even worse, we're seeing the self-righteous, confrontation-loving tone of Christian nationalism surface in other faith contexts as well. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz studies religion and conflict at Arizona State University and is an expert in the culture of Orthodox Christianity. Her Religion Dispatches article is headlined, Orthodox Church's Authoritarian Anti-LGBT Statement Poses Serious Threat to Academic Freedom. And that's a mouthful. And I'm pleased that it brings Dr. Riccardi Swartz to State of Belief Radio. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, I'll bet a fair number of people who are listening aren't familiar with the American Orthodox Church. Could you share just a brief primer with us? Sure. Well, there's really no American Orthodox Church. Um, There is a series of immigrant faiths that came to the United States at different points in the history of what becomes the U.S. Um, So we have Greek Orthodox. Many people might know them by their wonderful food festivals. Um, We have Russian Orthodox um, and a, a wide variety of Orthodox churches that we typically and historically think of as tied to um, a national community. So Orthodoxy in the United States has these different permeations. One of them happens to be the Orthodox Church in America, which has a large contingent of American converts to the faith. So people who are not immigrants um, and who found Orthodoxy often later in life through searching or reading about it. So how many people claim affiliation or membership or whatever they call it in this stream of churches? So Orthodoxy is a minority faith in the American landscape. We have less than a million members. um, And the largest contingents of those would be the Greeks, the Antiochians, which come mostly from Lebanese background. Um, and also the Orthodox Church in America. And then from there, you have smaller uh, groups. So you have the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is the community I work most frequently with. You write about a recent encyclical that appeared to maintain traditions, but in fact broke some new ground. Uh, Talk about that, if you would. 
Sure. Well, the Orthodox Church is historically what we might consider a conservative Christian tradition. So they hold um, to certain moral values. Um, they are not inclined to accept homosexuality as part of their worldview. Um, they believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, and they're focused on what we might consider as traditional social moral values. Um, and we see that coming up a lot right now. Um especially since the 2016 election, we see Christians who consider themselves conservative talking about the idea of um, conservative or traditional family values. Um, now, that's that's nothing new in terms of the Orthodox Church. They've always held to these um, teachings and uh, the Orthodox Church in America, which this encyclical came out of in 1992, had already issued a statement on this, that they believed that marriage was fundamentally between a man and a woman, that homosexuality really had no place in the church's teachings on um, salvation. What was new about this encyclical and what I found alarming as someone who is both um, a scholar of orthodoxy in the United States and also a practitioner and who happens to be affiliated with the OCA, is that it also condemns scholars who want to think about, research, and talk about uh, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ plus rights, in any way that might deviate from the church's teachings. Well, who wrote and promulgated this particular encyclical? Sure. So it was, uh, at first, we, we, as we understand it, was presented to the All-American Council of the OCA. So they have these councils that meet, um, and this year it was in Baltimore, Maryland. And from what we gather, it was the Synod of Bishops who came together and decided to write this encyclical. Um, it was presented to the All-American Council by um, Archbishop Michael of New York and New Jersey. And this may be a question you can answer or not, but do you read this encyclical as being something that is protective of the OCA, or is it meant to be proactive in American society? I think it certainly is trying to be proactive. Um, right now within the Orthodox world, there's a lot going on. As we know, there's a war in Ukraine that the Moscow Patriarchate seems to endorse uh, theologically. Um, the, the Greek church has recently um, had something that they consider a, in some parts a scandal, which is the baptism of children of a same-sex couple in Greece. And so I think all of this right now is um, is the OCA pushing back against what they believe of is modernity infecting the church. And how does that impact academic freedom? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, academic freedom, um, as the former chancellor of the OCA, actually, Father John Dillians wrote about in 2020, is um, it's inextricable from conscience and the pursuit of truth. Um, and so as a, an academic who studies the church, I think that this is, um, this is a problem because it historically does not align with what the church has taught. The pursuit of truth for me as an anthropologist who studies orthodoxy is about um, reality. So we have orthodox jurisdictions who do not want to dialogue, um, who are focused on creating their own sort of hyper-insular form of orthodoxy. Um, I actually write about this. It's what I perceive of as reactive orthodoxy. 
Um, it's a melding of Christian nationalism, of traditionalist values, and of these sort of authoritarian ideas of who can be in a group and who can't be in a group based on um, their gender identification, based on sexuality, based on their uh, social moral leanings. And so I see this as um, this encyclical is not surprising. I see it as a product of the time because we're seeing this kind of censoring of academic freedom and uh, thought widespread within conservative Christian communities. Are there other such encyclicals that address things other than personal sexual identity? I mean, certainly there's a wide variety of encyclicals that the church has written over the years, and and each jurisdiction has their own. Um, I have not seen one that's been this alarming in terms of telling people what they can and cannot say, people who are not attached to the church. So, for example, the encyclical states that any layperson um, who is a teacher or an educator uh, cannot go against the teachings of the church. They will be punished um, in, in I assume by a spiritual court Um, and what form that punishment takes. We don't know that could be excommunication from the church. That could be um, a ban on them receiving communion for a while. There's all sorts of things. So I am quite shocked by this encyclical. And I'm also appalled that, um, you know, in thinking about the history of the Orthodox church, which was, you know, founded in debate and dialogue at councils, historic councils that the church still refers to, that they would uh, take these measures to suppress the ideas and thoughts of their laity and of their clergy. So I I don't mean to ask you a question that is going to take you out of your comfort zone, but on a personal basis here, are, are you concerned about uh, recrimination or retribution against you for raising this issue and speaking publicly about it? Sure. I mean, you know, I I am an um, anthropologist at a secular institution. I actually just moved to Northeastern, where I'm an assistant professor of religion and anthropology. And so I'm quite comfortable in secular academic institutions. Um, what I am alarmed about is the, and it's mostly lay people on social media who feel like what I write is heretical. Um and it's not. <laughs> uh, there, you know, there is nothing in what I write that goes against what the encyclical actually says. I am, in fact, critiquing the encyclical because it suppresses the ability of people to have free thought. And that is a problem because orthodoxy as a religion is supposed to be founded in love and healing. And um, this is not what this is about. Hmm. How does all of this overlap with the January 6th, 2021 insurrection? Mm. You know, I've written about this a lot, but within uh, orthodoxy, we find a growing contingent of far-right believers. Um, These are mostly converts to the faith, mostly males. Um, And they're quite young, in fact, 20s to 40s. Um, What... I find fascinating is why these converts are drawn to orthodoxy at this particular moment and what that might tell us about the American religious landscape. Um, You know, I spent a year living with a far right um, community of converts to the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia in Appalachia. And they were very disenchanted, not only with American religion, but American politics. And so I think that 
just like other forms of conservative religion, orthodoxy is experiencing a group of dissidents who believe that they have found something that aligns with their political beliefs. But in reality, what they're doing is transforming an immigrant faith into the image of what they believe it should be. Very interesting. And and is this extremism building bridges with orthodox structures in other countries? Uh, and how about white evangelicals in the United States? Well, you know, it's really interesting because we see this uh, relationship between um, converts here and Russia, certainly. And we even, if, if we listen very closely to the Moscow Patriarchate, Patriarch Krill, he uses the language of the American culture wars. Um, and he's not doing it for his Russian listeners. He's doing it for his American listeners abroad. Um, it's very clear that he's doing that. I mean, his, his um, justification of the war in Ukraine at one point was uh, gay pride parades. And so there's most certainly connections between um, more radicalized groups in Russia and the United States. And among evangelicals, it's, it's quite interesting here because while Orthodox converts who consider themselves uh, more radicalized or far right, um, they use the language of white Christian nationalism. They often will not associate with evangelicals because they see them as heterodox. They see them as not fully conforming to the faith. So their goal is always to missionize among evangelicals and try to get them to uh, become Orthodox. Wow, what a complicated scene for someone who attempts to practice their faith in that world. Mm, indeed. What else, what else should our listeners know about the trends that you're observing? I think it's important to know that um, this is, you know, again, orthodoxy is a minority group. The far-right community within this minority group is quite small. But that doesn't mean that we should overlook them. If you think about January 6th, it was a constellation of different groups that came together in this one violent act. And when you have people that have similar or, or, or overlapping worldviews, um, they unite for causes that they believe in. And so I would be alarmed. I mean, we have people within the Orthodox Church who believe that Russia can save the world, that Putin is right to invade Ukraine. At the same time, we have people that hold to neo-Confederate ideas about the American South. And there are white nationalists um, and there are white supremacists. And so I think that we have to be um, cautious about how we think about these communities because it's easy to overlook them. Um, they're geographically diffuse across the United States. And it's easy to say, hey, this is just a fringe movement within a very small religious community. But the, the Internet is a powerful thing, and it connects this fringe group to other fringe groups across the United States. And the result could look very much like January 6th again. Wow. Well, I, I thank you for bringing this to the attention of our listeners and to opening our eyes to something other than the headline-grabbing majority. Dr. Sarah Riccardi Swartz is Assistant Professor of Religion and Anthropology at Northeastern University. She's an expert in Orthodox Christianity and the author of Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia. Her Religion Dispatches article is headlined, Orthodox Church's Authoritarian Anti-LGBT Statement Poses Serious Threat to Academic Freedom, and we'll link to it 
from stateofbelief.com. Sarah, thank you for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and to be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.